0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast, Thank you so much for listening. Later on.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music one iconic record at a time.
0: I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band.
1: And I'm Emma John, author, journalist and all-round bluegrass novice. And today we're talking about Flat and Scruggs at Carnegie Hall, which was released in 1963 by Columbia and is a live recording of a historic performance by Lester Flatt, Earl Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys at the famous concert venue in New York City. The concert had taken place on Saturday 8th of December 1962, and it's significant not just because it was the first time a bluegrass band had headlined that famous stage, but because it was happening right in the middle of the folk revival, which I suspect we're going to end up talking a fair bit about today. But first off, Patrick, I just wanted to say that even though I'd never heard this record before, I knew I should be excited about it, because the title ends in an exclamation mark.
0: Which, which is the sign of excitement.
1: It is. It's the sound of excitement. It's not it's it's, a, it's loud. It's it's not just flattened scrugs at Carnegie Hall. It's Flatten Scrugs at Carnegie Hall. Flatten Scrugs at
0: Carnegie Hall. Or it could be Flatt and Scrugs with a question mark and then at Carnegie Hall.
1: <laughs> the point being, it was a little bit of a surprise to have Flatten yes. Flatt Scrugs at Carnegie Hall.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And and I think that's one of the things that makes the record so compelling. Is there it is, Flatten Scruggs, these quintessential rural southern bluegrass pickers, famous from WSM and Martha Whiteflower playing at the iconic venue of Western classical tradition Brahms and Mahler and Mozart and Beethoven and Juilliard and all of these names that are so associated with 19th century European music. All of a sudden, you got Flatten Scruggs, you got Lester Flatt up there speaking in his beautiful southern drawl
1: and the crowd loved it Ac- apparently according to what I could hear on on my version of the record that crowd was going absolutely nuts from about track one
0: yeah they were and and I also thought that all of the talking that that Lester Flatt and Earl and 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 the the Foggy Mountain Boys all of the speaking it seems very rehearsed and very on point and a little bit hokey and it's just eaten up. You can hear it. it's true. Everything that th- that they say, even if it sounds like they've said it a, a thousand times, the audience is just right there with them the whole time.
1: So we should talk a little bit about uh, the audience and who was there and, and why it was significant. Um, but maybe first we should just set the scene for anybody who doesn't know about what was happening in bluegrass music in 1962 when this concert happened which was right. essentially that bluegrass music had really been in the doldrums because mm. of the new the new more cool sounds that had come along like the beginnings of rock and roll and country music had responded to that with mm-hmm. this thing called the Nashville sound that was smooth and heavily produced and electrified and so these this old guard, and really they weren't an old guard. They'd actually only really been doing their thing for 10 to 15 years, but they suddenly sounded really outdated because of what was happening on the airwaves. And they had really lost a lot of popularity. So it was a real crisis crunch point for these musicians.
0: Right, and it was December of 1962. And so, you know, you think at that time, uh, Elvis had been just taking over everything and that was still a rural southern sound at its core Uh, but it had totally swept these guys aside and you'd seen country music as you said go to the nashville sound and get really cleaned up and produced and you added choirs and all sorts of keys and electric instruments to country music and i don't think that bluegrass really could do that and still be bluegrass you know bluegrass kind of the whole point of bluegrass was this sound that that Earl Scruggs and Lester Flatten and those guys had really helped develop and I don't think you could Nashvilleize it or, or or do that thing that that you that had happened to country so it's true and I think the big moment here was that a few months before they played Carnegie Hall just in September the ballad of Jed Clampett was recorded and released by Flatten and Scruggs which became the theme song to the the hit tv show the Beverly Hillbillies and that had really also, I think, launched Flatten & Scruggs into stardom just a few months before this. And that song had gone to number one in the country charts, which was a first for bluegrass ever. So right in the lowest point of bluegrass, there was Flattened & Scruggs, traditional bluegrass sound, number one in the country charts. And then here they are just a few months later playing Carnegie Hall. That's a seriously uh, important awakening for bluegrass music and specifically Flatten & Scruggs.
1: And it's interesting. They... Did it essentially by hitching themselves to the folk bandwagon because right. the folk revival was happening and the Newport Folk Festival had begun in 1959. And Flat and Scruggs didn't play there together, but uh, because Lester Flat didn't want to fly, apparently, so right. Earl Scruggs had gone and played there on his own um, or with with some other players, but not with Lester. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, Earl loved flying. By the way, came became a, <laughs> yes, became he sure a pilot did. later. I discovered right things right. I, I never that... knew about Earl Scruggs.
0: And <laughs> that speaks to I guess the 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 differences in many ways between Flat and Scruggs is flat is is uh, you know it's kind of an aside, but it's it speaks to what maybe was part of the dynamic within the band that made them so interesting. Earl was a very modern guy. He loved to fly. He loved modern music. He loved rock and roll. He formed a band with his sons. Uh, in the after uh, Flat and Scruggs broke up in 1969, he he toured with his sons playing kind of rock and roll and and Bob Dylan style music. He loved to fly the airplanes, and Lester didn't. Lester wanted to stay stay traditional, and I, I and that comes through in the music. Uh, you know, Earl is the innovator of the banjo. Scragg style banjo. He's the guy that's really moving and shaking and 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 changing things. And and we think of bluegrass as traditional, but he was really in- innovating a sound when he joined Bill Monroe in '45, and uh, he kept doing it his whole life. Flat wanted to just play the bluegrass, the, the the traditional style.
1: Well, let let's let's not get ahead of ourselves because this is a very still a very traditional record. I mean, in terms very of very much what's actually on here, th- this feels like quintessential Flat and Scruggs music. And it does. They open with Salty Dog Blues which to me is one of the Flat and scrugsiest songs I could For think
2: of. sure. I stand on the corner with a low-down blues A great big hole in the bottom of my shoe And let it be your salty dog be your dog but i won't be your man at all I let be your salty dog
0: when you think of Flattened Scruggs, one thinks of, of, you know, the uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown and the Ballad of Jed Clampett and the Salty Dog Blues. It's, it's one of the... and Why do you think that is? What about it to you speaks to being so quintessentially Flattened Scruggs?
1: I think the fact that it's a little bit incomprehensible
0: <laughs> in yeah,
1: terms of definitely. the lyrics. I actually think that about this whole record. If you look at some of these songs... I mean, the, you don't. I don't want to call them nonsense songs, but mm-hmm. they're they're veering in that direction. Some of the lyrics, and I know that that's not that's not true. I know that that you can decipher a lot of these lyrics. I mean, "Salty Dog Blues." That's it's it's hilarious. I remember the first time I sang it at a jam, and <laughs> I didn't know what was going on at all. And I asked um, the gentleman sitting next to me uh what what we were singing about uh and he was he was maybe 30 years older than me and I said what's a salty dog and he he looked at me and he said uh ma'am I I think it's a term for a sexual partner
0: (laughs) of course and I've I've heard uh I've heard some alternate lyrics to this song that definitely imply that it is a sexual partner there, well, there are some, some risque, to, to say the least, versions of this song.
1: I went and did a little bit of Googling to find out exactly what a salty dog might be. And there seem to be numerous suggestions on the internet about what the actual salty dog is. There's, there's, there's a suggestion that it's a, um, it's a hot dog on a stick, essentially, which mm. which. Is where the suggestiveness yep. comes from, I think. Uh,
0: that uh, I that that makes sense. That yes. makes
1: sense. Um, there's also hold on. Let me find. Let me read this to you because this is amazing. Um, yes, uh, this I'm ready. is from a book called A Sometimes Westering Man, which says that the term salty dog actually refers to a medicinal device used by some early frontier America communities, especially in the eastern Appalachian ranges. In the fall, during hog butchering season, small sausages, or dogs, were placed in a brine solution and left to soak until the winter cold arrived. At the onset of pneumonia or influenza in a community, these sausages, or salty dogs, were heated and worn under the clothes with women placing them inside their bodice it was believed that the combination of brine and hog fat was beneficial because the salt drew noxious vapors from the body while the hog fat insulated the body against cold temperatures so essentially people were sticking hot dogs wow. down their clothes to to ward off the flu oh, in wow. Appalachia there's quite a tall tale element to yes. some of these songs and this one in particular right. um I think it's also really interesting that um it's not the only song on this record that has African American um heritage that we think of these songs as being quintessentially flat and scrubs and um being this you know, from this white rural community. But uh but yeah. that one and Hot corn cold corn both right. come from African American singing tradition.
2: Oh, baby, let me be your Salty Dog. I don't want to be your man. Oh, baby, I want to be your Salty Dog.
0: That's Mississippi John Hurt playing Salty Dog Blues. I also think with Salty Dog Blues, they, they're they kind of setting the scene a little bit. You know, the, it's the first track, and, and it's got imagery, you know, standing on the corner with low-down blues, great big hole in the bottom of my shoes. They're, they're trying to, I think they're also painting a picture of themselves, you know, as, as worn out, hole in my shoes, you know, like low down, it's a, it's kind of got the, the bluegrass imagery and, and, and sounds to it. And I think it's, it's an, it's like, a makes sense as an opening track for what they're trying to do, you know, convince and sh- display to this New York Carnegie crowd who they are and what they really are. And they're the real deal. They're legit, you know?
1: Yeah. I wonder who was in that crowd because, like we were just saying, that that crowd is so into the music and they are, like, yelling, which that is not a Carnegie Hall crowd thing to do. They are making requests from pretty much the end of the second song. They're screaming for Martha White or uh, Foggy Mountain Special or whatever it is they want to hear. So I'm wondering if quite a few of that crowd – had travelled for that. But I only say this because yeah. I went to see I went to see Chris Seeley play at Wigmore Hall in London. Wigmore Hall is almost as old as Carnegie Hall. It's it was built in 1901, so it's ten years younger, I think, um, yeah. than than Carnegie Hall. So it's but it's equally you know prestigious. It's it's the place where great chamber musicians play. Uh, play bark and and all this stuff and um, Chris Thiele came and did a set and there was complete silence in the audience because that's what you do at a classical concert utter right. respect and when he started playing bluegrass numbers there were about five or six bluegrass fans in the back who who were whooping at the end of a particularly great break or, you know, just applauding and getting excited. And you could see all the entire rows ahead of them. You could see the shoulders tightening as these very well-dressed ladies and gentlemen failed to handle um, an interactive audience at Wigmore Hall. And I'm surprised that there wasn't a little bit of that at Carnegie Hall. That's why I wonder how many of those people in the audience were transplants.
0: Right, transplants. Or, you know, maybe in New York, in the in the folk revival, you think New York is kind of where the folk revival in a big way got going. If you think of, I'm thinking of Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen and the, the cafe scene that we all, you know, is so romanticized now. And I think there was a bit of a bluegrass scene happening in New York at the time. Um, it's the early 60s and, and there were, you know, Grisman and 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 Tony Trishka, and those guys all came out of of the New York scene, not necessarily maybe the city, but New England. there were bluegrassers around, and I would definitely say if if Flatten Scruggs were going to Carnegie Hall, I'm in Boston, I would go."
1: I've managed to run into Pete Wernick of the very famous bluegrass band Hot Rise at the IBMA conference and bluegrass festival in Raleigh. And Pete, a little birdie, has told me that you yourself were at the Carnegie Hall concert that Flatt & Scruggs gave in 1962.
2: December 8th. I was 16 years old and I got my tickets early and I was so psyched. I had already seen them twice before in smaller venues, but uh, they also had Merle Travis on the bill that day, which a lot of people don't even know about or remember, but uh, he was there and he was great. And um, uh, there's a lot to remember. I still remember, even though it's now you know so far back, but um, there's this magic moment when the- it's a huge stage. And they just walked out on stage. And they are all about exactly the same size, and they're all wearing hats, and they're all wearing matching suits. And it was like a little tribe almost walking out there in the middle of the stage in Carnegie Hall. And then they started a play, and everybody's going, Oh, so good. And you can actually hear um, when they come in for the first course of Honey, Let Me Be Your Salty Dog, the whole audience is going, Oh, it's so great. And uh, New York City 1962 was not too used to hillbilly music. There was no country music on the radio at the time. Uh, I was a year or two from starting a bluegrass radio program, but that would, was then the only one that was on at the time. So another memory I have is, uh, the well, it's a well-known story now, of course, uh, that a lot of people were yelling for the Martha White theme. and. They weren't prepared to do it. They didn't really expect to do it, but they agreed after the intermission that they better do it or these people would keep yelling and messing up the recording. So they just did it and everybody loved it. And without that, I don't know if I would have ever heard of Martha White and Hot Rise. I guess I would have heard of Martha White Flower, but, but Hot Rise came into my. Radar at at that time And uh, I was later in a band With one of the people who was yelling for it And and I can hear their voices I recognize the voices on the record Of uh, some of the friends that I had And it it was just A sensational thing Anytime I got to hear Earl Scruggs play I was at that time Two years into playing banjo And he was then And still is my musical hero So much great stuff about Earl Scruggs And that band was unbeatable
1: how old were you then?
2: I was 16.
1: And you, uh, you're you're misting up just just oh, yeah. t- talking about it. You totally. you actually got tears in your eyes.
2: Well, you know, uh, how many moments, exact moments, can you remember from 16 years old when you're 72?
1: The other person who was famously in the audience at, at this hall was Joan Baez. Yes, because yes, she which... had become really good friends with Earl Scruggs, um, and mm-hmm. I think from the time that they first played together at the Newport Folk Festival in '59, right. And she was a huge fan, and so she was would, there supporting would... her friend. It's interesting because Flat and Scruggs were already; they were already working the folk circuit they recorded live at Vanderbilt University uh which is another great record yeah. um a sort of companion yeah. piece to this record I'd say um right, uh, right in 1963 um but they were already uh they were already working it and the thing I love um about the story of how they were already working it is that it was down to the vision of Louise Scruggs Earl's wife that's right. she. She was this phenomenon who recognized, saw what was happening, saw that while bluegrass was struggling against the new commercial music, there was this folk revival happening, and she was the one who actually just started marketing them as folk music, um, and right. to the extent of I think she actually called one of their one of their albums at that time "Folk Songs of Our Land."
0: In right. Order just to get right. the
1: word folk into the title.
0: Another interesting part of this record as a part of the folk movement and being marketed as part of the folk movement is that it it came out of a different area of what had what would be considered folk music. And I think a lot of the folk revival was was initially kind of the Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan movement, which is much more political, work songs, um, and i this music to me feels more uh more like social folk music it's dance music it's it's spiritual music it's it's kind of performance music and I, it's interesting that you know uh you take that music and you put the folk the folk label on it and it gets kind of cast into the same category with that just by being folk that's that's interesting and and i i'm glad it happened um that 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 was accepted as well and that the folk music at the time didn't just have to be uh political
1: yeah i tell you another way it's different probably from the folk music at the time is that every song on this record is so short i don't know if you noticed. so short oh yeah you know two tracks in you get to the end of the second track still haven't broken three minutes at that no and then seven of the 15 tracks on this record are under two minutes long which is extraordinary and it actually made me think Flat & Scruggs would have done very well today for the Twitter generation I mean Uh, definitely talk about short attention span right if they (laughs) they say these days that you know you lose people after 15 seconds of watching a YouTube video right that and it's really important to grab people in the first 15 seconds I I think I think Flat & Scruggs would do really well right now
0: Right. It's perfect. It's like, you know, dig a hole in the meadow is 140 characters or less. You could tweet that out in no time. You
1: could do. Um, Of course, the LP itself was a new format then, which
0: is interesting. Um,
1: It's interesting to me because obviously there are only, what, 15 tracks on this record and the concert was twice that.
0: One thing that I think is interesting about uh what they chose to play and what made the cut is is Bill Monroe's Footprints in the Snow. Um you know they they famously had kind of a feud with him and and uh and yet they they play one of his quintessential songs and they do yes, it so well.
1: Except I don't a quintessential Bill Monroe tune, but I also discovered that 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 too is was not a Bill Monroe song. It's an English really? it's an English musical song from the 1880s. Wow. I discovered this thanks to the brilliant historian uh, bluegrass historian Wayne Erbson in his Rural Roots of Bluegrass book. And it's it's clear it's it's the same song from the English English musical tradition. One of the lines that is very slightly different which I love. Is that um, instead of strolling through the meadow greens as Pleasant There's No Doubt, the actual original line was spooning in the meadows green as Pleasant There's No Doubt.
0: Wow. Okay. I like that. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> that's great. Who well, that's doesn't interesting. like a bit of
1: spooning in Green Meadows.
0: So, who did you say the songwriter was?
1: In Wayne Urbson's book, it says, uh, with a little detective work and the help of Tony Barker from London. Um, here is the original version of I Traced Her Little footprints, Foot Marks in the Snow, as written by Harry Wright in about
0: 1880. Wow. That's very, very interesting. Well, so there then, you go. Yeah. So they weren't playing a Bill Monroe song. I wonder it, at the time if they knew that or not.
1: Yeah. Um, Bill Monroe did like to take credit for things, didn't he?
0: He sure did. Bill claimed... Uh, authorship of that song. I, I, I'm reading that Bill claimed authorship of that song, and I wouldn't put it past him to claim authorship for that song.
2: I've
1: always found that song really confusing because the first time I heard it, I thought that Little Nelly was dead and that what had been discovered in the snow was Little Nelly's dead body.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be implied, and also now she's up in heaven with the Angel Band.
1: But then so, why would he bless that happy day when Nelly lost her way? You this is
0: the confusing thing with this song, you know? I just, I've wondered this. Many- Every time I hear this song, I get a little bit more confused because I well, always I try. Think, I think maybe this time I'm finally going to get it. No, I, I think do.
1: the answer is that it's clearly a corrupted version of this musical version, this musical song in which little Nelly has just got lost on the moor. I saw her little footprint just outside the cottage door. I traced it down a country lane. I traced it to the moor. I found she'd lost her way. There she stood in blank dismay, not knowing where to steer for in the snow. I called her. She saw me. And as we were walking home, she promised that never more without me would she roam. I'm happy now for life. For her, I've made my wife whose footmarks I traced plainly in the snow.
0: Wow. So clearly
1: it is a happy song.
0: It's a happy song. That that gives me a sense of closure with this song. Yeah,
1: but somehow Bill Monroe, by rewriting it a little bit, turned it into what sounds like an episode of NCIS.
2: Now she's up in heaven, with the angel band. Soon I'm gonna join her in that happy land. Every time the snow falls, you bring back memories. I found her when the snow was on the ground. I traced her little footprints in the snow I found her little footprints in the snow Bless that
1: happy day Still not as controversial, I would say, as the song with which Flat & Scruggs finished this record. It wasn't the song that finished the concert. It would have been a very strange song to finish the concert. It actually came about the middle of the concert. But they finish uh, the record with Let the Church Roll On um, mm-hmm. Which is uh, a rare gospel song about church discipline,
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> right? Right, right. It's a
1: very specific and um, niche kind of gospel song, uh, where you're basically talking about how to deal with drunkards and women who dare to paint their faces.
2: There's women in the church. Oh my Lord! God paint on their face. Oh what shall we do take some water and wash it off and let the church roll over. let's church oh the
0: church oh a lot let of the, the songs roll roll that I think of as quintessential flat flattened Scruggs tunes that didn't make the cut one of, like like roll In my sweet baby's arms how that song somehow didn't make it on this record is is bewildering to me because that's one of the big hits of bluegrass music you know it's it's I I'm curious as to how that didn't make it and and yet something like um I don't know but Martha
1: Um, White the Martha White commercial does make it on which I think is hilarious I mean the fact is that the audience is hollering for the Martha White ditty from really early on It, it sounds on the record that they're doing it from two songs in but actually that's a result of the editing that happened on the record Mm. they actually didn't start calling for Martha White until about seven songs in but still
0: interesting I
1: I read in Josh Graves's book that it used to happen to them everywhere they went that Martha White the Martha White advert was one of the things that got requested absolutely everywhere they went um which is, is just really interesting to me from, from a perspective of today and thinking about artistic intention right. and integrity. Are you big blame
2: uh-huh. with and Yes, ma'am. Goodness gracious, good and light, Are you big bit of biscuits, cakes, and pies. Call the White, say fries and flour. The one all purpose, flour. flour. Martha White, say fries and flour. It's got high rise.
0: On the other hand, it's a very catchy song. It's it's a good song. It's kind of a cool melody, you know. It's it's a good one, but it is an advert. Yeah.
1: Well, I think in a way, Flat and Scruggs were they were really made for that stuff. I mean, I think they were. Lester Flatt's voice. I this is an interesting thing that I only realized listening to this record because I think I haven't listened to any live recordings they've done before. So uh, when I have listened to their songs before, it's just been on albums um, with no patter in between. And hearing Lester's patter for the first time uh, was extraordinary to me. You know, I knew Mm -hmm. he had this gorgeous, smooth singing voice, but the silkiness of, of his speaking voice... And the, the gentleness of it. It's, right. It reminded me, there used to be um, an advert that uh, the great British actor, comedian um, Stephen Fry used to do over here for a beer. And um, he, he would play this smooth-talking bartender. And I think the tagline for the beer was, smoother than a cashmere codpiece. Uh-huh. And that's what I thought of when I heard Lester Flatt speaking on this record. Definitely.
0: And and uh, if you've ever watched the Flat and Scruggs TV show, I think that Lester Flatt's speaking voice is a big part of that show because I think that's it. It's a lulling, soft voice. And then, you know, to tie it back with the Martha White theme, then you'd have Lester Flatt introducing the Martha White representative who would talk to you about how delicious these biscuits were going to be if you use martha white's self-rising flower uh it's it's definitely incredible but on the contrary i find in this record a lot of the banter that that goes on and the jokes they make uh maybe it's hindsight but i find it to be very rehearsed it sounds so rehearsed that that it's almost at this point it, it sounds hokey and you know i i hate to use that word but it just it comes across as so cleanly rehearsed and and yes it's with that lester flat voice but
1: but, but don't you think this... that the comedy elements of bluegrass in those days were they were corny i i they think were. i think all that all that comic stuff they did was was corny and i think it was I think that's what people wanted i don't know i i feel like that was just that was just the style i mean yeah i yeah i would i would put mama blues in that category yeah i find mama blues it's one of those things i i, I think oh, yeah okay it's clever and and i yeah. love the idea of i love the thought of earl one day sitting there discovering that he could make his banjo sound like a little baby boy yeah, crying yeah
3: for sure but
1: at the same time, you know, there's there's a bit of me that just finds it a little bit too corny.
3: Now what on earth you want, son?
2: You want who? You want your mama we we'll call her
0: and as someone who uh never got to see flattened scrugs of course um i wonder if they did this at all their shows and i wonder if if they did they did they ham it up a little bit more because they were at carnegie hall and they were trying to paint a a slightly more dramatic picture of themselves or was this just their mo
1: I have read around some message boards about this from, about this yeah. record and there's some suggestion especially you can hear it if you listen to the extended edition things yeah. go wrong on this record um, yes they there do are, there, it's, it's not a flawless performance there, no uh, th- things that go wrong there's um, on Mama Blues which we've just been talking about the bass and banjo don't even come in together in time and right. I have heard suggestions that Scruggs was a bit nervous that day Well,
0: and I I heard on this record just before we decided to record this podcast I did a full listen through this morning and I heard a couple of moments that I didn't write down but a couple of moments where Earl definitely made some mistakes one point he's going from low on the neck to clearly high on the neck and he overshoots it you can hear him correct it but the note a a semitone up from where you can clearly hear he's going for he hits it and i I, you know that's rare he always comes across as such a kind of stoic in control musician and he was he was incredible but i i definitely sense that he's a little aware of the situation a little too aware of the situation
1: Did you read what Dorothy Kilgallen, the New York Times critic, wrote the morning of their show at Carnegie Hall?
0: I did not. And I don't want to put that in the podcast because I should have. What did she say?
1: She wrote um, in her column that morning of the Flatten & Scruggs concert, the hicks from the sticks are coming to town. I want to warn you in time to get out.
0: So she really didn't like it. That's interesting
1: there was there was a there was a bit of edge there um and apparently they then did refer to it in um in the concert at the start of the concert i, I believe it was lester flat said i see a lot of you folks didn't read your papers today because huh. the hall was was completely full but i think this would right. be a good time for me to tell my little carnegie hall story because yes do i was there this january And I was lucky enough to get a tour from the director of the archives, lovely man called Gino Francesconi. And he revealed to me why Carnegie Hall has got this this extraordinary reputation, why it became the benchmark of having made it as an artist to play there. Would you like to know why that is?
0: Yes, I would.
1: (laughs) So apparently it's because when... Andrew Carnegie built the hall in 1891. He built it in Midtown, and there was nothing else in Midtown. All the the life and and the social outgoings of New York City happened downtown. And actually, Midtown still had fields and pigs, and uh, nobody went up there. So if you were an artist who managed to sell out Carnegie Hall in the mid 40s, wherever it is, you had proved yourself because you'd managed to get all those people to travel out of their way to see you.
0: Right, which is perfect. I mean, back in the day, in order to see a great concert, you had to go from through the countryside, through the pigs and the sheep and the horses. And yet there you are now, or in 1962, traveling by train or through the city's streets to see the rural southern folk music the yeah. uh, it's it's poetic to me there's there's a there's a an interesting connection there
1: so should we talk <laughs> a little bit about the sound and the band because yes that's interesting to me um i didn't realize because i'm still learning about this music that uh that they performed with a six piece band and that uh yes. they had this extra rhythm guitar uh, they
0: did they did it's interesting yeah they had uh uh cousin jake tullock oh no that was the ba- uh, the bass player so they had uh, they had uh bill powers
1: playing rhythm guitar
0: playing rhythm guitar
1: and 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 at this concert he he was out on stage with them i think that's right and everyone saw him yeah i i yeah. read on the internet that um, somebody who'd been to one of their college campus concerts at Cornell University, yeah. and um, this person said that when they had gone to to see Flann's Gruggs play, Billy Powers was standing behind the curtains on the right side of the stage. And so Lester Flatt's out the front just doing his strum, and there are G-runs that are happening, <laughs> and they're obviously not happening on stage And it was because Billy Powers was mic'd up up in the behind the curtains.
0: Wow. How terribly unfortunate for him. (laughs) (laughs) Not not only do you not experience the glory of being able to perform on stage with one of the great bluegrass bands, but you're standing so far from the band. How do you even play music with people that you're hiding from?
1: I, I don't know. So I hope that's a true story, but that was that that was firsthand from somebody who who had been at one of their concerts. Of course, what you don't get on the record is any of the sense of the incredible choreography that they were pulling yeah, off around these definitely. two microphones
0: yeah. that they had. It it's also, I mean, and and having two rhythm guitar players um, with with Lester Flat and Bill Powers, and and having a dobro. Um, is interesting because we think of the traditional, traditional bluegrass band now as five instruments, bass, guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle. And I would say that at this time, maybe that kind of quintessential quintet wasn't quite as established. Yes, Bill Monroe had been kind of in that band with sometimes multiple fiddles for a long time, and he famously didn't like the dobro, but that these guys were, you know, at this point promoting the the quintessential bluegrass sound without a mandolin. So they had had Curly Seckler in the band, especially for all the Flat & Scruggs TV shows, uh, episodes. And yet in this concert, they had they had they were passing that chop sound around uh, between. uh Josh Graves on the the guitar and or, and the, on the dobro and Billy Powers on the guitar.
1: So I read in the new Earl Scruggs book that had recent has recently come out, um, Earl Scruggs Banjo Icon, that that this was probably a purposeful move to to identify themselves differently to make their sound sound different to right. Monroe's mandolin bass sound, and th- that was right. probably why why they got josh graves to start playing dobro because josh graves was originally hired as a bass player
0: right right and and that makes sense especially at the time i think there was some animosity famously there was some animosity between Flatten and scruggs and bill monroe and and bill monroe was upset that he had these two guys in his band and he claims he taught them everything they know and then they go off and form a band that becomes more famous than than his band you know, they're, they're, they're trying to get some distance as well. So that, that makes sense. And I also, I just love the sound of Josh Graves on the dobro. It's one of the, one of my favorite things about, about and Scruggs is Josh Graves' sound. He plays some crazy licks, some weird, you know, almost a out, as you might say, stuff on this record. That's really, really cool. And, uh, I just love it. I'm so glad that he's in this band.
1: So I am intrigued by the fiddling, actually. I'm most intrigued yes. by Paul Warren's fiddling. Yes. I read that he joined the band to replace Benny Martin. Does that sound right?
0: That does sound right. I mean, I think of some of the earliest Flatt & Scruggs that I ever listened to, that I was listening to for the fiddle, and it was Benny, Benny Martin. Uh, Foggy Mountain Chimes is, is one of my favorite Flatten & Scruggs tunes, and the original recording of that is a, is a great fiddle kick by Benny Martin, and he's on a lot of that stuff. Um, so
1: Paul Moran is a real change of pace they actually I think Lester Flat describes him as the best old-time fiddler in the business when he yeah. when he announces him on this record and it is a really different and it's much it sounds to me a much more old-time style
0: for sure I, I love get. it I love it I mean he really plays a lot of shuffle bow that really rhythmical cha 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 you know, and and he he plays the fiddle. He really digs into the strings, and well,
1: I f- I find it sounds. I was thinking, it, it sounds almost hurried. It it adds this urgency to the music, I I because it sounds like it's especially on something like Durham's reel. You know, there's this almost yeah, kind of yeah. frantic sound of the bow being yeah. dragged back to its position.
0: Definitely. I love it, and 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 I think that combined with Earl Scruggs and Earl Scruggs, I think, kind of did the same thing. He would lean way ahead on the beat, and so when he and Paul Warren are playing together, they just create such a tension, such a drive, and a forward momentum. And it's so cool to hear those two guys play together for that reason. They're they're I agree with you. They're both, you know, they're just shy of frantic, especially Paul Warren, in the best way. It's, and, it's and, interesting
1: and- I wrote that as well I, I, I thought it made me think that, that that even and there's on Flint Hill special it feels yeah. like the bass is pushing um, and that yeah. this music is almost like getting faster and building and to the extent that you feel like if, if, if you just took a pin out somewhere that these instruments would all just spin off on their own ax- ax-
0: axis right, right. just kind <laughs>
1: of disappear sure. get hurled off the stage in different directions.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and I I love that, you know, Paul Warren also, I think he played so with such ferocity that he's there are two strings ringing on his instrument, at least two strings ringing at all times. You know, he is just full of double stops. And and I just I love the sound of his fiddle playing. He's yeah, he's he's one of the great sounds of of bluegrass to to my ears.
1: His son, Johnny Warren, is now playing in the Flatten & Scruggs, what do we call it? Do we call it a Flatten & Scruggs tribute band, Earls of Leicester? Uh, he's, he's playing with Jerry Douglas and Sean Camp in that band. Um, yeah. So it'd be interesting to know from him what he has discovered about his dad's style from replicating it.
0: Definitely, I, I, and and also about playing his dad's fiddle in that band. It would definitely be very interesting to hear from him about what he has to say about playing that music on that instrument, um, with such a proximity to it to his dad. That's so such an interesting thing.
3: Oh mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this is Johnny Warren, and I'm going to try to answer these three questions that you'd sent me by email. First one: was, What was Dad's fiddling background before Flat and Scruggs? Uh, on Saturday nights, my dad would would uh, sometimes walk about a mile uh, up to a friend's house because they had a radio and uh, they could pick up the Grand old Opry up at a neighbor's house there and, and, and I remember him talking about listening to Fiddling Arthur Smith who uh, had become my dad's idol uh, growing up and he would listen to Arthur play whatever he played on the Opry that night and then he would uh, you know, hum it all the way home and get to fiddle out, try to learn learn the tune that way. And um uh anyway, after he got to play a little bit better he started playing at some dances close by and around there and and then later on I'm not exactly sure how he met Johnny Wright, but I, I think the story kind of goes that he would ride his bicycle to Nashville and I guess Johnny and Jack were maybe in the studio or, or somehow he knew they were there and I think he met Johnny Wright and uh by meeting him uh, soon after, I think he went to work with Johnny and Jack playing fiddle with him. I know he was drafted into the into the war and uh, was captured soon after after joining the army when he went to war by by the Germans in North Africa during World War II and and uh, was a POW for 29 months. Uh, somehow, prison guard found out that he played fiddle and got him one and and he performed for the prison officials uh, sometimes for small favors uh, and. Uh, And then after that, uh, when the war ended, he returned home. And then it wasn't long after that, he he left and went to Raleigh, North Carolina, where he shared a room with Chet Atkins and Sonny James for a while, and then eventually connected back with Johnny Jack and Kitty Wells. And then, kind of a long story short, in 1954, he and Benny Martin basically traded jobs. Benny left Flat and Scruggs, and, and my dad went to work for them, and Benny went to work for Johnny and Jack, and and uh, anyway, that kind of leads him up to when he went to work with Flat and Scruggs. The next question was, what have I learned about Dad's playing style and playing his fiddle? You know, my dad was a, a not a bluegrass fiddler uh, at all. In fact, you know, the music of Flat and Scruggs was a form of country music, and Flat and Scruggs didn't want to be recognized as a bluegrass band. And actually, they weren't a bluegrass band at that time. Uh, besides Earl, they had. Uh, Josh Graves, and they introduced the the dobro, so you have a bluesy dobroist and and Uncle Josh. And then uh, my dad was a a Tennessee old-time fiddler, and really he was kind of a fiddling Arthur Smith with overdrive. So um, they were uh, trying to set themselves apart from Bill Monroe, and and they they certainly did that. But I had no other fiddlers to learn from but my dad. Uh, He was working for Platt & Scruggs when I was born, And they had a half-hour TV show on WSM in prime time every Saturday night, and then Monday through Friday, they had a 545 radio show, a 15-minute show that was uh, sponsored by Martha White, and when I was out of school in the summer, I would go sit and watch them do those 5 to 10, 15-minute take radio shows in the studio with them, and... And I would go with them when they'd do usually four or five TV shows, those thirty-minute TV shows, and that was all at WSM in Nashville, or not all of it, but when I would go, that's where it was. But no other bands had the exposure much, and and that was all I heard. So Paul Warren at that time had more exposure than any other fiddler, and he played at home during the you know the few days that he was off each week, and uh, so it was uh, it was, and it still is the way I'm programmed. So I was just programmed that way from birth. You know, his fiddle still excites me. I do remember in 1962, I was six years old in the first grade, and and that was the year that I picked up the fiddle and started to play. So uh, it's interesting. I didn't even think about that at all or haven't thought about it until until you asked me this question, but uh, that's when I started to to play the fiddle some. And uh, one story that came to mind, and this is, I mean, it's a crazy story, but I'm not sure if this happened right before or right after Carnegie Hall, but it was right about that time that my dad was driving home one Saturday evening from the Opry late, and and he was uh, over on the road here coming out of Nashville, Dickerson Road, coming to Madison where we lived, and he was tuning the radio and and, and ran off the side of the road and clipped a telephone pole in half, flipped a, a 56 Chevrolet upside down in the roof. That's a hard top. Crashed all the way in and, and crunched all the way into the front seat. Amazingly, even lift. Through it, but I remember with my mom going to pick him up that night, and he had one little scratch. I think he had two stitches in his shin, and that was that was all it did to him, and he was fine. But that car sat in our backyard for the longest time, was as a reminder of uh, just amazing that he even lived through that. But uh, I'll tell you this: my dad has, has kept date books from 1957 until Flatt and Scruggs broke uh, up in 1969, and I checked out his 1962 book uh, um, here recently, and they left at uh, 12.01 a.m. on Thursday, December the 6th for a show at Jordan Hall in Boston, Massachusetts on Friday, December the 7th, and then they played at Carnegie Hall on Saturday, December the 8th, and then they went on to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a show there on Sunday the 9th before coming back to Nashville. Um, Very interesting and a great year for for that type of music and for Flat & Scruggs for sure.
1: That is pretty fascinating. I didn't know any of that about Paul Warren's story neither did I so I'm really incredibly grateful we got to to hear all that from Johnny
0: yeah thanks Johnny
1: thanks Johnny um we're coming to the end of our podcast now uh and I I wanted to thank a couple of people um including Johnny uh we were gonna say you should definitely check out the latest Ells of Leicester album Rattle and Roar it's called available from Rounder
0: not to be confused with U2's Rattle and Hum different record
1: different record different vibe yeah slightly uh, thank you to Gino Francesconi at Carnegie Hall uh, for for that really helpful tour he gave me <laughs> and also just for chatting to us about Flans Grugs. Thank you to Steve Watt for his reminiscences. Thank you uh, to Trevor McKenzie at Appalachian State University in North Carolina for his additional research. And um, I just wanted to say, now that we've got to the end of talking about this record, I actually have a completely different answer to the question you asked me earlier, Patrick.
0: Which question is that?
1: The one where you said, what is it about this album that seems to sum up Flattens Grugs to you? Mm. And I think that since we've been talking about it and thinking about it more, I've realised that really they are entertainment. Like, they are true entertainers. And something about this record, I think, really sums up how much fun they are. It's just really about fun and some of that is silliness and um some of that is comedy and a lot of it is just like rollicking good tunes but uh, just super entertainers and
0: exceptional musicianship on all of their parts
1: yeah so um well until the next time we'll be listening to this record over and over again
0: over and over and over